Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody, my name is John Bleasdale, I am a writer and film critic, and this is Writers on Film. Today I'm going to be talking to Leon Hunt, who is a senior lecturer at uh, Brunel University in London. He is the author of several books, and his latest is called Mario Bava, the artisan as horror auteur. It's a really excellent survey of the cult Italian film director, um, hugely influential and someone who is certainly has certainly come back into into critical acclamation. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to like, subscribe, spread the word as far and wide as you possibly can. You can follow me on Twitter at drjonty. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. one that I knew several years before I actually saw any of the films because all my early film books were horror film books and I was yeah the horror films that I knew at that point were you know the Hammer films the Universal classics but you would see stills from Barber films in these books um, so I was I was aware of him the films weren't easy to see back then when I when I was growing up. They weren't really being shown on television. Um, that they, they they weren't easy to see in the cinema. But he was someone that I'd sort of 
you know, was kind of a little bit obsessed with, you know, even before I'd seen any of them, you know, I just really wanted to see them. There's something about that uh, seeing uh, photographs in books that that drives you, drives me crazy about wanting to see a film. Yeah, and there are some where, you know, it's years before you get to see them. And somewhere, you know, you're watching a film, and you think, oh, that's where that still came from, <laughs> that image that's been, you know, lurking in my imagination all these years. Only recently did I realise that um, Dennis Gifford's uh, pictorial... Uh, Pictorial History of the Horror Film, which was the first film book I ever owned, has a still from Barber's Operazione Paura. Kill Baby Kill, as it's also known, of a sort of ghostly figure with a, with a hand sort of held against the window. And you think, wow, I've, I've had that image all this time. Uh, it was many years before I could put it in a context. You're just waiting to for it to for it to come towards you in in uh, in the dark. Um, yeah, I had the same thing with uh, I think it was Robert Kolker's book Cinema of Loneliness. There was a still from The Wild Bunch, and it's just like the it's like the bloody mayhem afterwards. Yeah. I'm just thinking, how do they get from how do they get there? You know, it just yes. <laughs> So that that really influenced my sort of wanting to see that film more than anything else. Um, <laughs> how would you describe Barbara then for somebody who hasn't yet gone on the journey and, uh, you know, as a sort of introduction to him? I think a word that comes up a lot with Barbara is atmosphere. They're, they're films that are high on atmosphere. It's interesting that when people talk about Barbara, they, they nearly always downplay narrative. Uh, and there's a sense that, um, you know, that's not what you remember about the films. You tend to remember them for particular sequences and often they are atmospheric sequences. So they're films where the style is very visible, even though they were made on modest budgets. Its earlier films lean very much towards the Gothic uh, a very stylized use of color, uh, of, of colored gels to light different parts of the set in, in different colors. That's one of the, the signatures of his style. He's very fond of figures kind of floating towards the camera and sequences that kind of get under your skin. But some of them, not all of them by any means, but some of them are also quite startlingly violent, particularly for their time. So I think they're often also seen as forerunners of Dario Argento, who, who comes along later, uh, particularly with, with Barber's thrillers like Blood and Black Lace, are often seen as sort of forerunners of the, uh, the, the Dario Argento thriller. Yeah, I, I, that's the. I mean, that's uh, talking a little bit about his reputation. His, um, you have a brilliant quote in the book where you, is it Monticelli says? Or... Oh, Mario Monticelli. Yeah, Monticelli says. Uh, you know, he back then Mario Bava was underrated. Now, thankfully, he's overrated. Yes. He's <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, it's kind of. I I think that I think that could be said about a lot of cultish passions. It's it's like the, the joy of discovering them means that you're gonna you're gonna blow them up almost to compensate yeah and 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 i think actually when you do sort of encourage people to watch barber films you you don't do the films any favors unless you add some caveats and you do yeah because i do think they're films that you need to watch in a particular way and you need to make certain allowances for a lot of that i think comes down to that attitude towards you know atmosphere just does atmosphere compensate for the absence of other things? So I say, you know, the fact the narrative is, I mean, I think sometimes people slightly exaggerate 
the weakness of the narratives, but they're certainly not the strongest thing about the film. The acting isn't the best thing about the film, but the, the characters aren't hugely engaging. And I also think they're films where you're kind of, your engagement is perhaps intermittent. You know, there are particular, they're, they're very much films that you enjoy in parts, I think. That's, that sounds, yeah, intermittent. You mean there are bits that are a bit boring. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think Barber is one of those directors where you can really tell which parts of the film he was interested in and which parts it's like, well, we've got to get through this bit. We've got to have these two people talking to each other. There's a bit in The Whip and the Body where two characters are talking to each other and it's just, it's a boring bit of exposition. And the camera just wanders off and does this kind of circular track and ends up on, on a, a vase with some roses in it. And it's there's this sense of, well, we've got to do something. You know, we've got to have this scene, but we've got to keep it visually interesting somehow. That's so good. That's so, and that sort of style as well. That sort of, um, you know, I mean, that thing about narrative not being the top priority. I mean, there are some, uh, you know, incredibly well respected directors. I mean, also used to say, you know, plotting is boring and it's not interested yeah. in the plot at all, you know. And even someone like Leone, I don't, I think, you know, so, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, I've never really understood the story of that film. It's sort of like, <laughs> I, halfway, it makes sense at the beginning and it makes sense at the end, but there's no middle to that film. It's, mm. uh, it's just sort of you, you're just waiting to get to the final gun uh, gunfight. At the end. Um, what about speaking of Leone as well? What about um, the context? Because I mean, I think Monicelli's point as well was uh, is, is kind of clearer when you understand the context of the Italian cinema at the time. So could you could you sort of give us a bit of context? What what when was Mario? Bava uh, mainly active and and what was the situation in the Italian film industry at that time? Yeah, so Bava had started off as a cinematographer and a camera operator and he'd la and also special effects and his father had done that before him. His father went back to silent cinema and he'd never intended to be a director. But by the late 50s, Italy had well they'd had an unexpected hit with uh, a film called Le Fatiche di Hercule, which became better known as Hercules internationally. And that was a sort of modestly budgeted film, which made a, a ton of money in Italy, mainly in the second and third run cinema. So there was a kind of a three-tier system in the exhibition sector where you'd have the what they called the Prima Visione cinemas, the first run cinemas, where the big prestigious films, the ones that would be expected to make a lot of money uh, would go in. And then there would be the second run and the third run. And over time, there would be some films that would go straight into the second and third run cinemas, where there would be a very, very fast turnover. There is also just like a ridiculous number of cinema screens by the 60s as well, both official and also less official ones where, though, you know, you'd screen a film in a piazza or a church hall or, or something like that. So this sort of yeah, made it apparent that there was there was money to be made from films like Hercules, and they it spawned a whole cycle of films about Hercules and Machiste. And Barva really made the transition from cinematographer to director under this system because he was the cinematographer on the first Hercules film, contributed a great deal. Um, to making the film look a lot more expensive 
um, than it actually was, and also gained a reputation for sort of finishing off films that ran into trouble. And so as a result of this, was allowed to make his own film, which is uh, uh, La Mascara del Demonio, which became known as Black Sunday. So it's a... It's yeah, a, there, there's uh, quite a few of these films we have to point out have like three or four different titles. Oh, and, and, and sometimes a lot more than that. <laughs> so so when was the Mascara del Demonio? When was uh, Black Sunday? That's 1960. Right, right. So that's his official debut. But he'd, he'd, done, he'd finished off a couple of films before that. Um, he'd worked on a film called I Vampiri, which is the first... Italian horror film, which was directed by Riccardo Freda, who's another sort of interesting figure in relation to Italian horror during this period. Freda was notoriously temperamental and had kind of stormed off the set at some point, so Barbara kind of finished off the film. Um, I think that was that was well into production, but then they did another film together called, called Caltiki the Immortal Monster, where apparently Freda left the film much earlier. And so Barber directed most of, of, of that film. So he started directing films quite by accident, really. And it was known that, you know, he had he was someone with enormous technical skills. He could make films. I mean, this is the other reason why these films are doing so well, is that they were just punching well above their weight in terms of production values. And also there was there was American money floating around in Italy during this time. There were frozen funds and there were American productions that were using facilities at Cinecita. And there were, you know, I mean, Sergio Leone was doing second unit work on, on I think, Sodom and Gomorrah for Robert Aldrich. I think he actually finished that film off for Robert Aldrich because sometimes the Hollywood directors would sort of run into difficulties uh, I think that happened to Jacques Tourneur on uh, the Battle of Marathon and Barber sort of finished part of that uh, film off. So it's a period of like massive overproduction and sometimes production companies which would set up, they, and sometimes they just, they'd make one or two films and then dissolve and then another company would form. There are lots of cinema screens, so there's, there, so there's a need for lots of films to fill up those screens. Because in the um, the third run cinemas, the program would change every day, and television hadn't really fully taken off yet uh, yeah, in so Italy. Period, I think you had like one channel on a yeah. TV. Yeah, yeah, there was Rai Rai Uno, I think. Yeah, and that yeah, part, well, yeah, what became Rai Uno? Yeah, yeah, and the uh, yeah, because like, it's like it's it's like them not saying BC when it's actually BC. Because yeah, of... <laughs> <laughs> um, we haven't started counting yet, but yeah. The, um, the the cinemas themselves, I, I, you make this really good point. The the cinema going experience would change depending on what cinema you're going to, in the sense that w what level of cinema you're going to. If you're going to the prestige cinema, you know you buy your ticket, you sit down, you watch the film as part of a theatrical experience. But if you go to one of these grindhouse for, uh, or, or more local cinemas, it's more like you're going to a social gathering that there happens to be a film showing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and people might arrive halfway through and. And yes, they meet they meet up with their friends. It was often a kind of rowdier experience, uh, and, and I, I imagine there were you know there were equivalents to that in other places as well. You know the the you know the grindhouse cinemas in in America. I think there were similar viewing experiences in Hong Kong when in the heyday of Hong Kong cinema, where you'd get you know it'd be a very distracted audience, and that therefore 
you know, again, that might be one of the reasons why the films are stronger on set pieces than they are on, on the kind of the linking material. Although most of the films that Barber made did get at least a brief run in the first run cinemas, um, because Hercules had started off in the Prima Visione cinemas, but then it had made most of its money uh, in the second and third run ones. Mm. And, and also maybe the choice of the, the, the strong generic element of Italian cinema as well, that it, 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 it falls into these genres very readily yeah. rather than, uh, you know, um, well, I mean, I, I guess you have neorealism after the, after, immediately after the Second World War, but by the 60s and 70s, it's the genre films which are, which are taking precedence. Yeah. Yeah, because there are so many of them. And, and, you know, you'd get a film that was a hit, and then you, you get next two or three years, lots of films like that. I mean, Italian horror, it never really, in the home market, it didn't, certainly in the 60s, produce a kind of breakout hit mm. of a kind of fistful of dollars, Hercules type. It didn't, Italian horror didn't really catch on with Italian audiences until Dario Argento. And I think that's what, and that, and and even he started doing stuff that would be more considered sort of crime thrill. Yeah, Argento came in through the Jallo door, and I think that was his way of establishing a kind of audience for an Italian horror film. I think he found a way of kind of bringing it home. And you're looking. You look at Bava. So you, we have this idea of Bava as this sort of troubleshooter. This uh, this guy who can come in and fix stuff. He's very practical. He knows how to do stuff. You get a lot of bang for your buck. He can make an, a low budget film look like a medium budget film. Not exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and yet he doesn't kind of critically. He doesn't fit into sort of an author theory of cinema. You know, he's he's not necessarily writing his own stuff. And he's and he doesn't sort of he doesn't do the, the the interviews that you would want an author director to have. So you you mentioned at one point that sort of the idea of going to the cinema for for Mario Bava was was like like a busman's holiday. It's like well, why, why, yeah, I'm not doing this. Why would I want to go and see a film? You know, yeah. to relax. <laughs> he was he was much more of an avid reader than he was a film goer, and I think he did largely regard cinema as work. And it was work that he enjoyed, and I think he took pride in it. But, I mean, I suppose there's always a danger of taking what filmmakers say too much at face value, and certainly his interviews give the impression that he didn't take it very seriously. He, he was interviewed a bit more later when he was doing uh, Diabolic for Dino De Laurentiis, because that was a higher-profile film. He was interviewed a bit more around the time that he was making that film. But he was often saying things that were really not very helpful to his reputation. You know, one of the interviews he did while he was making Diabolic, he said, all cinema is made for infantile brains, uh, which I'm sure is exactly what De Laurentiis would have wanted him to say to publicise the film. Or later when he, you know, he dismissed all of his films. He said, you know, I, I never made a good film. All my films are grandi stronzate, is how he sort of described them. It's like a you know, a load of shit, basically. Yeah, yeah great bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it sounds like Pete Townsend just dismissing yeah. rock and roll. You know, yeah. rock and roll's just a bunch <laughs> of idiots. Yeah. Oh, God, I, I miss the days when, when publicists didn't have an iron grip on their... Yeah. <laughs> 
But then again, <laughs> judging by David Mamet's recent comments, there are still plenty of people out there who can just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there are, the, the loose cannons are still out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There's not, uh, you know, yeah, Will Smith, another one. Anyway, yes. <laughs> so let, let's not get onto that. Let's not get. That's another horror story, and one that's far <laughs> less entertaining. Um, so we've got Barber sort of building his career, you know, as a troubleshooter in the Italian film industry, then making his own films and beginning to define a genre throughout the 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 sixties. Um, do you see uh, how do you see his development as a director? Do, do do you see him sort of making making quite big steps? And in, in if so, in what what direction? How would you formulate it? I think it's a career that sort of lends itself to being periodized to a certain extent. I think that's shaped less like less by him sort of, you know, a sense of progression than by moving in different circumstances. So I'd say for about the first four years of his directorial career, there is a, it's a period of relative stability because there was a production company that he was very closely linked to called Galatea, who'd made the Hercules films. And he did La Mascara del Demonio for them and a few other films. And he was someone they relied on a lot, he fixed films for them. And he had a regular team around him as well. He had a very good camera operator. His editor was Mario Serandre, who went on to bigger things, working with Visconti uh, and people like that. And it, so that was a kind of period of a relative stability. And I think those are some of the most polished films that he made during that period. And I think a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of sheer craft on screen in those films. Yeah, they're beautifully lit. Um, I think particularly the Galatea productions, they gave him a bit more time to get things right. Um, so then, what, and what would those films be, just so, just for our listeners who haven't? Uh, well, La Mascara del Demonio, I've mentioned. Mm. Um, a film that's known in English as Black Sabbath. Mm. The original title is uh, I Tre Volti della Paura. It's an anthology film. Uh, three episodes introduced by Boris Karloff. Yeah, that's the one, the crazy one, where at the end, Boris Karloff is kind of, uh, the camera pulls back. And you yes. Know, he's in a film <laughs> studio. Yeah, he's on a dummy horse at the end. Yeah. And sort of, talk, and the, yeah, the camera pulls back and we see people running around it with branches of a tree. And um, that's, that's something Imamura does on one of his sort of fake documentaries, A Man Disappeared. He He sort of has this, um, brilliant story. It's a Japanese documentarian, uh, well, filmmaker generally, uh, and and right at the end, he just sort of breaks the walls apart, and you realise what you thought was a doc, you know, something being captured as a documentary was actually completely staged. And it's, yeah, <laughs> this is a yeah would be similar period as well, but yeah. I mean, it's not quite yeah, it's it's not got that level of kudos but um the the idea is certainly there of, of look at this look at what's happening yes <laughs> and, and Fellini does it as well Fellini does it yeah I mean I think that um for a, of, of kind of the respectable Italian cinema I think Fellini has the sensibility that is closest to Barbers mm. in some ways because Fellini has that fondness for fantasy and people often point out the similarity between Fellini's Toby Dammit and Barber's film Operazione Paura because they both have the blonde girl with the bouncing ball who's a kind of vengeful ghost in Barber's film and, and is the incarnation of the devil in, uh, in, the, in the Fellini film. 
so yeah, there, there, there's those two, and a film called The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which is a black and white uh, thriller. Um, uh, so those are some of the ones that he did for, for Galatea. But I think also other films he was making during that period, he was making with the same team. Blood and Black Lace was made for a different, uh, that was a co-production with Germany and France. Um, and that's still got that sort of very, very beautifully crafted kind of look to it. Then a few things change. I think Italy, Italian cinema hit one of its many crises. Galatea went under and he sort of becomes, I think, much more of a gun for hire and, and looks a bit more like a gun for hire. So you, you, there's a kind of middle period where there are some real standout films like Planet of the Vampires, for example. It's a sort of outer space gothic horror film, which looks way better than it has any right to, considering I think it's largely equipped with some dry ice and a few rocks. Um, but he's sort of, you know, it, it's one of those exercises in what Marvel's Barber can pull off with, with next to nothing. And Operazione Paura, Kill Baby Kill, which I think is uh, a favourite with, with Barber's uh, admirers. But also, he, you start to see him do films which are kind of less suited to him, particularly the Westerns. He did two or three Westerns, which had, you know, that's not, wasn't really his genre. He did a Franco and Ciccio film. Mm. Um, yeah, which... they're, they're, they're pretty dreadful. I mean, they, they have like very funny faces. And that's, <laughs> that's the, they're, and they're the comedy ends. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're an acquired taste, I think, Franco and Ciccio. Yeah, but also he did um, he did two things for De Laurentiis. He did Diabolic, yeah. which was a sort of moderate success, and he worked on a TV series of The Odyssey, uh, which was mostly directed by Franco Rossi. But um, Barber did the episode with um, the uh, Polyphemus, the Cyclops, which is actually one of the most frightening things I think Barber ever did. Uh, I think. I generated probably a lot of nightmares, I think, for any sort of younger audiences watching it. So there's a kind of moment where he he could have gone into the mainstream, I think, rather more if he'd wanted to. But apparently he found De Laurentiis unbearable mm. to work with. I mean, he was used to producers who, you know, as long as you hit the right commercial marks, they didn't really care what he did. <laughs> Whereas, you know, De Laurentiis was very hands-on, you know, it very much saw himself as part of the the creative process. So he kind of retreats, I think. And then you get a final period where I think things are, you know, tastes are starting to change. Dario Argento, of course, appears and, and is very successful and Italian thrillers become much more popular and successful. I think Barvo is starting to get a bit tired of, of making certain kinds of films. He's trying to do new things. There are problems. Some of the films have problems getting released. One of the films was never released in his lifetime because the uh, the, the production company uh, collapsed. Uh, Cani Arabiati, which is a kind of kidnapping sort of heist uh, movie, and Lisa and the Devil, which never got an Italian or an English language release in its original version and had to be kind of, it was reconstructed basically as a demonic possession film 
called House of Exorcism. Is that the one with Telly Savalas? Yeah. And, uh, he 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 originates his uh, lollipop sucking in that. Yeah, think. that's the one. <laughs> which, which he then transported over to Kojak. Yes. Because um, I remember seeing it and thinking, that's you know that's a bit crazy that Telly Savalas is playing Kojak in the movie. Yes. And then, then I looked at the dates and realised, oh okay, no, this was beforehand. So it's uh, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of um, it. That was meant to be his dream project. Mm. Um, uh, he just made sort of quite a successful film called Baron Blood, which American International had picked up. With Joseph Cotton. An American... Sorry? With Joseph Cotton. Yeah, Joseph Cotton, yeah, and uh, Massimo Girotti. Um And AIP had picked up a few Barber films over the years and, and, and done... I mean, they'd done really well with... And when La Mascara del Demonio became Black Sunday, they had a really big hit with that, that was their most successful film to date. So they'd had another hit with that. And then apparently after he'd made Lisa and the Devil, um, Sam Arkoff, the AIP head, was very eager to see it and pick it up. And then after he saw it, was somewhat less keen on, on picking it up. Because <laughs> it's a very strange film. It's like a kind of, it's a kind of odd mixture of an old dark house movie with almost last year in Marimbat. <laughs> It's got this sort of, you know, because it does these kind of weird time shifts and suddenly we're sort of back and we're not quite sure where or when we are. But that that sort of reminds me that the most famous, um, probably one of the most famous effects in a Bava film is that the, the sort of circular chase where people running after someone, you, you start realising that they're, that the person in front is actually the same the yes yeah in operazione paura yeah. Yeah, um, yeah yeah giacomo rossi stewart sort of chasing a figure through the same room yeah exactly. over and over again and then catches and it's and it's it's his doppelganger yeah and, and that's such a in some ways it's such a sort of like cheap trick if you like Mm. But it, he sells it so well. Yeah, uh, that and that is also a sort of something that you know. Yeah, it could be just like a horror trope or a ghost story trope or something like that. But it also has elements of sort of Kafka to it and surrealism and, and mm. you know, um, oh, who did those movies, The Beauty and the Beast and uh, Oh Cocteau. Yeah, exactly. That sort of yeah, thing. there's there's quite a, there's quite a bit in that film that is kind of reminiscent of Cocteau because there are candelabra holders that are like human hands mm. and that's very similar to i think it's la bella la bette that has the uh the, the the armed human arms holding uh holding torches yeah absolutely absolutely but i mean that's the that's what's fascinating about him he's he's not he's he's dipping into all of these genres and he's doing these genres and and there are these but there are these elements to them that that just seem to sort of rise you know rise out of the films and, yeah. and become something else. Yeah. I mean, that was something that I think those critics who were sympathetic to the films often picked up on the fact that you could draw parallels with people like Cocteau, with people like Franju, who were doing similar kinds of things that were being taken more seriously. But Barber was doing them in, you know, Serie B cinema of, of, for, for sort of it, Italian grindhouses. And he does have, uh, you mentioned the candelabras earlier, and also, uh, you know, I think another thing which goes with the atmosphere is the, the sort of furniture of these films as well. Yeah. The, the, the sort of the set dressing and the and the look of, of everything. 
Yeah, it was something that the sort of the American reviews often would pick up on where they'd say, oh, the story's nonsense and, you know, the acting's terrible and the dubbing's atrocious, but the production values are surprisingly good. You know, they'd, they'd often at least get a kind of tick for that. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's one of the joy of those films. It's a, it's a, a joy I certainly felt with, like, Hammer growing up was I just like under Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies. Mm. I just liked being in those houses. I liked yeah, absolutely. The, the dusty portraits the and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, Hammer and Corman also are examples of, you know, a cinema that is punching way above its weight. You know, their, their production values look way, way better than their budgets really should have allowed them to do because they just had these fantastic technicians working on them. Um, you know, great cinematographers, great. I mean, they've got Bernard Robinson at Hammer doing the set designs and often, you know, the same sets over and over again. But you just tweak them a little bit so it just looks slightly different. Well, the same shot over and over again. Well, yeah, Corman was notorious for doing that. I mean, Corman was the only one who actually recycled footage. I mean, how many times do you see those burning rafters from Fall of the House of Usher? Yeah, absolutely. I, was it in your book? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm reading so many film books at the moment. <laughs> there was an anecdote about him sitting watching Follow the House of Usher and saying, ah, you'll see in this one I've gone really... Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's his commentary on the Tomb of Lygia, where right, he's yes. sort of saying, because that was the last in the series, and he's saying, you know, I'm really pleased with this because this time I didn't just burn the house down, I came up with a different ending. We come to the end of the film, house burns down, come goes... Well, apparently I did burn the house down again at the end. <laughs> of course you did, Roger. That was your default ending. Oh, that's so good. That's such a... Uh, it's so heartwarming in more ways than mm. that. <laughs> that sort of, like, aesthetic and the also the just the, the, the good sense to not waste too much money. Yes. You know, one burning house, it looks very much like another. Why burn down two houses? <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's something that Corman and Barber... I mean, in some ways, I think they were very different people. But I think something that both of them had in common, I mean, as you say, you know, you can make those, with Barbie, you can make those connections to Cocteau and so on. Mask of the Red Death, the Corman's often compared with Bergman, and, and I think invites you to make that comparison, that both of them, you know, there's, 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 there's what seems to be a genuine artistic impulse there, but at the same time, a real pride in doing things as cheaply and quickly as possible. Yeah, it's it's like that's. Um, I get the feeling some directors when they get together, that's what they talk about most. You you see how much I saved on that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's what the price was on on that. And so, yeah, uh, it's 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 the ingenuity and the and the craft involved in in making something uh, look expensive when in fact it's quite cheap. I think is is mm. must be part of the gas of making films. Yeah. Um. So you've got. Bava sort of going through a series of uh of, of genres from from horror uh to the giallo uh, in terms of um oh you mentioned it earlier murder murder and black lace was it blood and black lace blood and black lace sorry yeah, yeah. which is the fashion industry one right yeah yeah it's, it's a, a, a serial killer and it's a series of elaborate and really kind of quite horrible deaths if I remember. yeah yeah. Um, and that seems to very much prefigure uh, Dario Argento and to some extent maybe even Fulci. Um, 
I remember that was possibly my first barber. I think that was my first. That's quite an introduction, that one. Yeah, it's kind of full on, isn't it? Yeah, because he's got the old black gloves and the point of view and all that mm. sort of stuff going on. Um, and I th- has that film been remade? It seems it feels like it's an influential film. Yeah, it's one of those films that I think over time, it, you know, it's now seen as a seminal film. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And at the time, it had no immediate influence whatsoever. Um, because the other, you know, when I think of the, the other Jally from the 60s, I mean, the most sort of typical Jally from the 60s were the ones that Carol Baker made at the end of the 60s, where she's, you know, she's a kind of wealthy widow or, and then someone's plotting against her to get her money or, or trying to drive her mad or to get, you know, and you get it, they're all sort of very Lady Abolique um, in their kind of plotting. Whereas Barbers seem to sort of look to something that hasn't quite taken shape yet. And and it took, I mean, Dario Argento eventually admitted to having been influenced by Barbers' earlier thrillers, but I think it was something he was reluctant to acknowledge for a long time. But I think something like Blood and Black Lace, which is, I mean, one of the uh, sort of co-financers of it was a a West German production company. And Germany had a kind of whole series of Edgar Wallace thrillers going on at around the same time, which in some ways have like the same kind of elements in them. You know, there's a there's a police investigation. There's a series of murders. There's, you know, some titillating things. There's some scary bits. There's usually a lot of comedy in the German ones as well. And Blood and Black Lace sort of feels like it's kind of taking some of those elements, but but sort of saying, no, here's how you do it. <laughs> you will do it in colour. We'll make the murders much more violent. Um, we'll push the, the titillation much further. Um, I mean, it's like, a, I always think it's kind of like a really lurid book cover that's come to mind. Uh, come to life yeah like a sort of pulpish you know, yeah a woman on the bed with a you know a, a strap, yeah a strapless dress and that sort of stuff yeah because i think a lot of these films from the 60s i think it's a you know it's like a kind of cinema of the newsstands uh you know the the odicola the odicola in, in italy where you get the cheap paperbacks and the fumetti um and and you know these kind of titillating lurid sort of violent sadoerotic covers 
and you know and they're mixing horror and science fiction and crime and all sorts of things and and the films seem to be really feeding off a lot of this kind of stuff yeah you also i i was surprised when i first arrived in italy uh i i lived here now for a good two decades and um even like the news reports when there's when there's it's called cronica nera when the when the sort mm. of crime crimes have happened or there's been a shooting or even if there's been a particularly violent car accident they'll like show uh you know like puddles of blood and they'll yeah. show bodies you know maybe hopefully covered but um it, whereas in england i well certainly not at the time that i left they they wouldn't be doing that that would be considered no. you know, too far for the six o'clock news or the or the midday news even but here there would be a real sort of like you know what happened to piccolo samuele well look here's the yeah. splash of blood on the wall yeah. and, yes and you'd be like oh my god so that sort of i don't know ghoulishness i don't yeah. really morally judge it too much but yeah that kind of acceptance of violence and sort of uh was much more pronounced so even as i said even in this sort of like daily uh, well, as you say, the edicola, the newsstand, the newspapers themselves, is, yeah, are right next to the to the pulp novels. Whenever I watch an Italian film from the sixties or seventies, and there's a scene near the the edicola, I'm always like immediately I want to freeze it and see what what are they selling, you know? <laughs> and just this is and and the ones, I mean, it's much tamer now. Um, but the ones from back then, you'd, I mean, it's like borderline pornography, like on the, on the kind of the newsstands and these kind of violent comics and paperbacks. I, I guess it's it maybe the influence of the Vatican as well. You have a very sort of repressed society in one sense, and then you kind of got to get it somewhere. So in yeah. a way, you know, violent crime gives you, uh, you know, it's a kind of excuse for pornography. You can't go out and buy just pornography. So you buy this and it's got, it's basically scratching that itch anyway, which is, you know, highly problematic, obviously, when you're doing that in the midst of a society, which is pretty misogynistic to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's something else I wanted to, to ask you about. Well, not, not necessarily on the misogyny front, but we can come to that. But whenever I watch Bava's films, I, and to some degree Argento and to some degree Fulci, I do feel like I'm entering a different universe, that this is a different universe to a Stephen King universe, say, mm. or a Romero universe, or um, there's, there's, there's less pity, you know, there's less uh, empathy, you know, people are things are going to, it's, it's more, you know, I mean, Corman's using Poe, and to some degree used a little bit of Lovecraft, but sort of the Lovecraft sort of cold, pitiless universe feels much closer to Bava than it does to Corman. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a cinema that invites you to engage very much with human beings. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't particularly... Uh, and I think this is partly to do with, you know, they're very quickly made and they're kind of organized around sensations and, and spectacles but um no there's not much of an invitation to um you know feel much for what's happening to who uh i mean you know a comment that's often made about blood and black lace is you know and, and i think of a lot of uh, Charlie 
is the the difficulty in distinguishing one victim from the next. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> different coloured hair. But, yes, you know, yeah, it, different it's, outfits. Yeah. Well, it's about fashion. It's kind of about yeah, yeah. superficiality <laughs> as well. So yes. You sort of find out who the individual is just by the way they get killed. You know? Yeah. Um, but one of the other really influential films... Uh, or at least a film that when I watched it, I thought, "Wow, this must this feels like it. It's 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 the beginning of other things." Um, now I've got to have to get the title right, though. Is it Bay of Blood? That is one of its many titles. Right. Okay. Um, it was. Yeah. Even even in Italy, it had two different titles. Right. So it was originally released as Ecologia del Delitto. Right. Right. And then it, there was a problem with its distribution, so it was reissued as Reazione a Catena. So chain reaction. Yeah. And then in America, it went out under a number of different titles. Twitch of the Death Nerve was the best of them, I think. That's oh, that is a fantastic good title. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, rather bizarrely, it. it became Last House on the Left Part 2 at one point. <laughs> um, and uh, Carnage, it was known as. Blood. It was released in the UK, very, very delayed. Um, I mean, about eight or nine years later, heavily cut as Bloodbath. Right. But, uh, but Bay of Blood seems to have become... The most, most certainly in the UK, most of the release versions seem to have defaulted to that title now. And that, and I mean, that's a real. That feels to me like a real Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah. Uh, sort of proto. Uh, you know, it, it's it's <laughs> a, a bunch of people being killed in a really interesting series. Yes. Of ways. yes. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 murder after murder after murder. I mean, there are there are two people killed in the opening scene. One of whom is the murder of the first person. Yes. So it really hits the ground running, and it just and it keeps on going. Yeah, I love that film, and I love the you 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 brought up uh, going back to what we were talking about about furniture as well. The design of the house as yeah. being uh, really important. Yeah. Yeah, because they're all sort of trying to get hold of uh, the ownership of this bay. Um, because there's, it, it sort of belongs to uh, a wealthy countess who's bumped off in the opening scene. And there's a guy who wants to turn it into a, a luxury resort. And there are other people who want to sort of preserve nature and keep it as it is. Um, uh, so there's, a, there's this kind of elaborate chain of murders. But there's one point in the film where they obviously thought, we're just not killing enough people. <laughs> and it just it seems it just introduces this. It's the one point where it's most like a Friday the 13th film, because this sort of carload of teenagers arrive purely to be killed off. And, 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 and they're the they're the goriest murders in it. It's the one where there are there's the couple having sex and the spear goes through his back and comes out through her back and goes through the bed and sort of pins them both to the floor, which is actually used in one of the Friday the 13th films. Um, it's just like you know, all the others are very clearly motivated, but those four, it's like, 
we've got to have something else here. It's just like they phone up. Is that Victims Are Us? Yes. We yes. <laughs> We're a bit short-handed. Do you mind coming yeah. to this weekend? Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a brilliant film. That I mean, I'd, I'd um, uh, do a rewatch. I think, and it's got. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's got one of the best endings. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, it really goes with this point that I was trying to make earlier. Of, like the universe is a cold. Yes. Place, yes. <laughs> there isn't any hope. Don't abandon hope. I mean, that you. seems to be the motto of nearly every Jalo, really. That that you know, there is there's no empathy. There's no yes. There's no human warmth whatsoever. Everybody's out for something. I kind of feel sorry for actors when I'm when I'm in the when I'm watching the film. I like oh, I feel so sorry for not only the character <laughs> but for the actor because you're not gonna you're not gonna get any anything out of this movie except people loving to see you hurt. You know? <laughs> and that film has a really good cast as well. It's got Laura Betty in it, uh, Leopoldo Trieste. It's a very very good cast. It's all the faces pop up that you recognise from Leone movies from Good Bad. Yeah, some you know, it's uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Luigi Pastili, who's in a few uh, Leone films, is is uh, is in it, and um, he plays. Doesn't he play Father Ramirez in the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? He's like Tuco's brother. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah that's famous. And one of the best bits of Ennio Morricone music in a. Uh, in in that movie, I mean, I love that. Yeah, well, obviously Morricone. What what are you going to do? But that the the theme that he wrote for Father Ramirez is just superb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, what what about you? I mean, I keep coming up with sort of like my uh, favorites, if you like. But uh, what's your sort of favorite? What's your uh, where where do you go to get your bar to scratch your barber itch? Um, I think I have. Uh, how many favourites am I allowed? I find oh. it very difficult to nail it down to one. Mm, oh yeah, you can have a few. That's fine. okay. I'm going to come up with three. Um, I, I, I first I would choose Diabolic because mm. um, actually it was the first Barber film I ever saw, um, and I'm a big fan of the comic as well. I sort of became a, my travels to Italy. I, I just became obsessed with with picking it up at the Odicola. Uh, there's a new film as well, I think. There is, yes. Martin it's Eden. Luca Marinelli, yes. That's right, yeah. yeah. it's pretty it's rather good, the new film. But yeah, so I love the I love the, mm. the, the Barber film. I did a monograph about it a few years ago, a little uh, monograph of the cultography series. Um I, and I, I just think it's sort of a model of you know how to do a comic book movie. Mm. Um Operazione Paura I've mentioned a couple of times. That's one I I, I never tire of seeing um i think it's a film that really sort of it kind of lures you in because it, it starts as though it's going to be a sort of a bit of a common knockoff you know sort of carriage arrives in an unfriendly location the coachman won't take him any further the locals are really hostile and then it just it's like one wonderful scene after another the, there's yeah the bouncing ball the blonde ghost the wonderful cobweb furniture, um, Giacomo Rossi Stewart chasing himself through that room over and over again. Um, and my third one would be The Girl Who Knew Too Much, um, which is the first of his uh, thrillers. And uh, almost, yeah, it's, it's one of his lighter films. Mm. Um, I, I think to anyone who was sort of thinking of getting into Barber, but maybe slight, slightly 
put off by the violence and the gore, um, that's a good one to go for because I say it's kind of lighter in tone. Um, it has some very nice suspense sequences in it, nice use of locations in Rome, lovely black and white photography. John Saxon is, is the male lead in it, who's always good value. John Saxon's amazing. I yes. mean, being in Planet Earth as well. Was one yeah. Things, uh, uh, as well as uh, what it entered the dragon. And, yes. It's an amazing career. Yeah, yeah. It just really sort of pops up here and there. Yeah. Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolute scattergun career. But, yes. You know, he, he, I, I've got a feeling he was one of those actors who gave really good lunches that just people. Yeah. yeah let's have him. I think he's probably also one of those actors who made lots of films that he'd forgotten having made. Yeah. I seem to remember hearing somebody, I think it might have been Alan Jones, saying that he, or someone, asked him about, because he was in Tenebrae for Argento, and him not remembering having been in it. Oh, yeah. um, I think there's a fair few of those actors in the 60s and 70s who have very little recollection yes. of uh, <laughs> what, they, what they did um, for one reason or another. Yeah. Uh, so what, one other film that you mentioned, sort of his, his late film, when, he, when he's uh, right at the end of his career and is this very violent, sweaty um, kidnapping film, Cane uh, Arrabbiati, uh, Angry Dogs or, or, or Rabid Dogs, I guess you would say in English, um, which is a really effective, nasty crime film. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, if you didn't see the opening credits, it would not leap out as you, at you as a Mario Bava film at all. It's not falling back on any of the things that he relies on. Um, it's not got the sort of the beautiful camera movements. It's using a lot of natural light. It's very different in its tone. I think it's a film that unusually does require you to engage with the characters rather more than some of the others do in order to, and I won't give away the ending because it really is a gut punch of an ending. But I think it does depend on you investing in that film in a particular way. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because we were talking earlier about um, him not caring so much about narrative, but there are two two of his twists are are up there with the best twists I've seen. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I'm not necessarily maybe maybe twists aren't necessarily evidence of great plotting, but they they certainly do something. Yeah, I, well, I think we, if they're. I say, you know, it's like a gut punch. I mean, I think a twist that sort of has that kind of effect. Because obviously, you know, a genre like the Jallo, it has lots and lots of twists, but they don't always, the twists in those films don't always make much sense. Yeah, yeah. I've never found, like, say, Deep Red, uh, Profundo Rosso, I've never found the twist like, oh no, is that, you know. Or, no. <laughs> for, that matter, for that matter, any Dario Argento, there's always a sort of like, a twist but it's never it's like oh so it's it's one of the three that i thought it was yeah, yes <laughs> that you kind of obviously set up as well it's not like uh i don't know there are some films like i don't know uh, well a good one for me would be like the mist where the twisting end of that as you said that's another gut punch ending exactly. isn't it? it's just it's visceral <laughs> it's sort of like no they can't go there you know, mm. oh, 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 they're going there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, what other int uh, what other work are you are you looking at doing next? What's where do you go from Bava? 
That's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, I've been trying to think about where I want to go next. I mean, I'm working on an article at the moment, which is about, I mean, I mentioned the, the thrillers that Carol Baker made uh, in Italy. She made a series of, of Jali, the end of the 60s and the early 70s. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of writing something uh, uh, about those at the moment. What my next book will be, I, I, I haven't decided yet whether I might delve further into the giallo, whether I might delve further into Italian horror. Um, uh, um, well, how, did you get, how did you get this connection with Italian horror and Italian uh, film? Where, where is there a, a, a biographical sort of link for you? Or, or what? Well, as I say, I, I started off with that kind of fascination with Barber. And also when, I mean, I, I caught a few Italian horror films at the cinema in the 70s, although I didn't necessarily always register where they were from. You know, they were very good at passing as kind of Anglo-American films. I think the first time I really registered the Italianness of an Italian horror film was Suspiria. Mm. And that was kind of one of those life-changing, movie-going experiences. Um, I saw it not on its very first release, but I think sort of about a second or its third run towards the end of the 70s. And I just thought it was, you know, one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever seen. So I became really interested in Dario Argento. I wanted to see Argento's other films. Um, I was still trying to, you know, track down the other Barber films. And then it all kind of fell in, you know, you, you, once, you, once you're hooked in, you know, and, and then at the end of the 70s, you know, those gothic films that Fulci was making were, were coming out. Um, so it was, you know, everything was kind of falling into place. It was becoming a sort of, a, you know, I mean, I, I'd always been a horror fan, but, you know, Italian horror. And, and I think that the end of the 70s generally was a period where more people were starting to register Italian horror as something that was distinct. Mm. You know, it wasn't just Mario Bava as a director who happened to be Italian. It was like by that point, I think there was a growing awareness. He was he was part of something else. You know, he was the, he was the start of it or he was near the start of it. But that it was worth delving into a lot more. And, and you know, and then you you know, you discover the Jallo and then you find out the Jallo wasn't quite what you first thought it was. Um, yeah. yeah, and it also has maybe something to do with the fact that these are films were, were films, were, you know, were being made, uh, you know, um, what do I mean by that? They were they were works of cinema, you know, and they weren't sort of with an eye to the, say, home video market or anything, even though a lot of them, that's where a lot of people had access to them at first. But mm. there's a sort of prestige to them and there's there's something maybe that you get as well by simply being foreign that is um uh that 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 you you get it looks better than your budget you know i mean it's, it's like the the spaghetti westerns they can use spanish locations and it looks great you know and it looks different and it doesn't look like california and so you've already got a, a little bit of advantage which isn't actually costing you any money and there's the same sort of thing's true maybe of italian horror that you can see certain things that you're not used to seeing in in say an american or a british horror film yeah i mean i think one of the differences between italian horror and american horror during that period was the way the different way that their low budget registered or didn't 
because I think American horror films embrace the fact that they were low budget and were happy to look low budget. It's like, yeah, we're gritty, we're indie, we're outside of the mainstream. Whereas Italian horror films, it was like, no, we want to look expensive. We want to get into the best cinemas. We want to be in the prima visione. Um, we want to get picked up for a, for distribution and and, and get shown around the world. American actors. Yes, yes. Yeah, we'll get some washed up drunk who's not not worked in Hollywood for twenty years and we'll Rick get Dalton. them in office. Let's get yeah, Rick yeah, over yeah, here. yeah. Uh, Operazione di domite. Yes. <laughs> Well, by the way, what did you think of the um, uh, Guadagnino uh, Suspiria, the remake? That well, I mean remake, the riff. The I actually really liked it. I mean, I, I found I, obviously you have to take it as a completely different thing, but I liked the fact that he just approached it in such a different way. Um, you know, didn't try to oh, it's got to be brightly coloured and and it's got to have all the gory stabbings that it it was a you know it was a way of approaching it differently mm. um so i actually i really liked it yeah yeah no i i think it it it, it definitely earned its right to exist in, yeah in in being separate enough from uh from the original i mean i, I there was a bit of me that was just wondering why don't you just make a sort of you know, an original. I mean, it, it yeah, that many tweaks. To, for it yeah, to yeah, it. yeah. That, that, I think that's a good point. Yeah, there was a side to it where you're thinking you could have just called this something else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and said, well, I was influenced by Suspiria because I liked the idea of it being in a dance school, but otherwise, it's you know, it's it's a different yeah. film. Brilliant. Okay, great, Leon. I, I've got one more question to ask you, though. Uh, you need to uh, recommend a film book for me. I am going to recommend a book which I read recently, which I just have to hand. It is by Tim Bergfelder. It's called International Adventures, German Popular Cinema and European Co-Productions in the 1960s. And this just sort of told me about films that I knew a little bit about, but not a great deal about, the, the German popular cinema of the 1960s. So it sort of chimed with my interest in the Italian cinema of that period. But, um, and I was particularly taken with the, I mentioned before, the German Edgar Wallace films, mm. which I think have a lot in common with the, uh, the, the, the Jolly of, 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 of Barva. And, Ar and Argento. So it's a really good read. It's it's an academic book, but I think it's a very readable uh, academic book. Um, and it's it's one that really stands out from some of the books that I've that I've read recently. Mm. It is fascinating this European sort of these different countries like uh, Spain and Italy and Germany that that have these you know huge traditions and huge wealth of of films out there to to see. Um, and I, you know, we do in England as well. There's a there's a fair few, um, it, there's a fair few studios in England which which are, are, are pushing out this this stuff, which is uh, which is well worth watching. Um, but I don't know. Some, there's something. Sometimes I think maybe we got too hooked on the uh, social realism prestige prestige cinema sort of dichotomy that we we 
our genre. Yeah, I think a similar a similar thing happens in yes, yeah, you know, social realism sort of got praised at the expense of Hammer and Amicus. I think in in Germany it seems that you know when when the new German cinema came in, there was a lot of sort of um, hostility directed at what was seen as the disposable popular cycles of the sixties. Italy, obviously, you know the genre films were didn't get the, didn't get prioritized to the extent that art cinema and and still neo realism I think was sort of hanging over a lot of that quite a lot as well. And then you know what happens is another generation of scholars come along and say, well, actually this stuff is really interesting. You know, David Pirri was writing about Hammer and, and British horror, and and you know Italian horror and thrillers gets rediscovered. And I think the same thing is starting to happen. Maybe in Germany, it's been happening for a longer period with those kind of cycles of, you know, I mean, we know we know about the Italian Westerns, but there were lots of German Westerns as well, the sort of the Karl May films. And were they, were they actually, they were called sauerkraut? Western? Yeah, I, th I don't know if I don't know if Germans called them that. No, but, fair uh, enough, yeah. Yeah. I know there was paella, paella Western. Yeah, paella Western, spaghetti Westerns, oh, and oh. Um, yeah, um, yeah, one, Lex, one Lex Barker. Yeah, one, uh, um, a town called Bastard, I remember. Uh, yeah, and there's, the, there's the singer, not the song, I guess, is kind of a British oh, Western yeah. as well. And that's what would you um, call that? Um, the steak and kidney pie Western. <laughs> Pie and chips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's um oh that's that's uh that's fascinating. I love I just love going into these uh I think it's also great when when there's a, uh, a a kind of cinema genre or a nationality that you that isn't immediately available, so that when you find it, there's that joy of discovery of like, yeah. oh, there are hundreds of these films. Yes, like, I'm going to be here for some time. You know? Yeah, yeah. I I just bought a box set of those Edgar Wallace films and I'm, I'm finding them really fascinating. Uh, to watch. I think cycles or film cycles always become more interesting over time, doubly so if they're from a different national cinema. But, you know, sometimes when you live through them, their similarity kind of grates yeah. and you find it irritating. Oh, God, not another one. Oh, you've done that again. Yeah. But, but, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later, those little differences become really fascinating. Oh, you've pushed that in a slightly different direction. Yeah, I think that's the way. I mean, like comic book movies, there's a there's a sense of overkill now. But I think if they stopped making them for about ten years, people would look back and go, "Geez, they're actually a really high level of quality for those." Yeah, you know, for what they are. I mean, my problem with Marvel is always that they're they're kind of too good. You know, they're kind of. Uh, you know, there aren't any really bad ones. There's maybe <laughs> one or two that aren't up to the level, but they're. They're very competent at what they do. It's just yeah. that maybe what they do, all coming one after another, is is ultimately too similar. Yeah, and we're sort of yeah we're at the moment we're living through that thing of oh they're you know they're too this or that you know they're too similar, but I have a feeling you know another thirty forty years those Marvel films might look a lot more interesting than they do at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And some, you know, like Logan and, you know, uh, various of the Batmans will will you know, really uh, <laughs> will stick out and, and you yeah, know, be, be properly acclaimed. Yeah. Um, 
as, as especially if we get rid of this freaking fandom horse apples that, that that go on you know this yeah uh, this... yeah that also helps yeah because it's it's it, it all of that sort of feeds into your you know your response to these films of you're just aware of all these kind of culture wars going on around them as well yeah i mean i i i love attending film festivals primarily because well there's loads of reasons actually but one of the main reasons is you walk into a film you don't know anything about it and you, and there's no reaction your reaction is going to be the first reaction mm. so you know i remember walking out of joker in venice and just thinking oh it was great i enjoyed that in a way that was totally innocent <laughs> yeah yeah by the time it had been released it was impossible to enjoy that film yeah yeah and uh and it's kind of that that innocence of uh of like uh, your first reaction yeah it was problematic it had a couple of things that you know would yeah i'm not an idiot i, I can see it <laughs> but i but but the experience of watching it was one of just sort of pleasure you know mm. <laughs> um but yeah yeah uh oh no what have i said what have i said they'll be after me now <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be, I'll get it from both sides now yeah yeah Okay, listen, uh, Leon, absolutely brilliant conversation. Thank you so much for, uh, you. for joining me. So that was our conversation, myself and Leon Hunt. Apologies if there was any distortion on the sound because uh, there, there have been a couple of local problems recently with the recording and the editing of these podcasts. I'm hopefully I'm smoothing it out, but I hope it didn't disrupt or, um, or mar your enjoyment in any way. Uh, I didn't want to mention it at the beginning of the podcast because, well, I don't want to discourage you, but also if you mention something like that, it might start preying on your mind. You might start hearing it when you wouldn't have necessarily noticed it so if you didn't notice it and you're thinking what's john talking about then all the better that my plan has worked anything anything that i need to tell you this week i don't think so i don't think there's anything specific going on oh i'll tell you one thing that did come out um just before i was recording this so it'll be a couple of weeks ago now uh which is uh the can um lineup i've just had an opportunity to glance through it it looks really promising there are the usual complaints about uh representation both geographically and uh based on gender um all of which are you know themselves valid but i think if you're somebody who's been um going to can for any number of years it's a very familiar it's a sadly familiar refrain um uh, but on the positive side, there are a lot of really interesting films that are coming up. David Cronenberg's new one, uh, Koreeda, the Japanese director. Um, uh, Kelly Reinhardt has got a, uh, a new film in competition. Uh, Claire Denis has a new film in competition as well. So there's a there's a there seems to be a bunch of stuff that that looks good. And usually, what happens is with all of these festivals, the films that uh, knock you for six are often the ones that you have no knowledge of prior to the prior to watching them um during uh can i'll see if i can do some recordings for writers on film and put them out as a podcast as well maybe just 
talked to a whole bunch of critics and and asked them for their favorite film books or the film books re- recommendations and then put those together and send them out that might be a good a good use of my time so all that remains is to thank elliot atkins for the music ali harwood for the artwork and thank you listener for um for spending some time with me until next week Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.